If you're a dog owner, safety and welfare for your pet are of the utmost concern. But there are so many so-called experts out there that many of us don't know where to turn to get the expert advice that we need. Welcome to Taming the Wild and Your Dog with noted dog expert and author Brian Bailey. In this program, we give you the tips you need to connect with your best friend with the most practical advice. Now, here's your host, Brian Bailey. You're right. This is where you can turn to get, uh, I'm not so sure about all the time expert advice because we always like to review articles and the latest scientific data. But by golly, I'll tell you this much. We'll put it to you as straight as we possibly can because you need to have it straight because there's so much BS that is out there, so much misrepresentation. Today, I'm really looking excited. I'm excited about this show. You know, this is something we hear all the time. It all is, the time. Yes. Tell them about it, Carol. On a daily basis, when someone's talking about enrolling their dog in a board and train, they're their primary concern is, is the dog going to think that I have abandoned them? Are they going to miss me? Yeah. Yeah. And, and well, some dogs are probably going, yay, please. I hope so. But yeah, do dogs miss us? I know we certainly miss them. You know, hey, I'll raise two hands on that. We miss our dogs whenever we board them or, leave or just separate from them from a long period of time. We do miss them. You miss your dogs? I do. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I'm very you know, memorable or not, but I definitely miss them. <laughs> it looks like Dave misses me something terrible when I come home. I mean, he's like shaking tip to tail. He's yeah. so excited to see me. So, yeah. I mean, it sounds like he's missing me. You know, so people ask all the time, will my dog miss me when I leave him? And will my dog forget me? Will my dog think that I've abandoned it? So what really does happen? You know, we don't know for sure. Do dogs miss us? like we miss them. You know, it's extremely gratifying to feel like we are needed and wanted. No one wants to be skip. I cannot tell you how many times I've seen actual, the owners felt pain. You could read it all over their facial features, their body English. When their dog comes into the lobby, is brought into the lobby after a very long stay, and the dog goes, hey, how you doing? And out to the car goes. They they're in pain. They really are. It's kind of like you whiff it. Someone throws you a ball and you whiff it and the dog's just gone. And there is pain. It, it is. You can see it in their faces. And a lot of times they cry in our lobby when they're leaving the dog. Absolutely. Yeah, feel for them. You know, so no one wants to feel like they're not wanted or they're not needed. Right. We had a, we had a client just recently during its turnover lesson. They were coming to pick their dog up from our board and train program. And the trainer was going to go get the dog and, and they expressed if he doesn't remember me, I'm going to be so upset, you know? And so that's, that was their primary concern, not how well the dog behaved, whether the dog remembered them or not. Yeah. That's always yeah. a concern. They're worried about that, especially if you have a rescue dog or, you know, that you adopted uh, maybe from a shelter and now you're, for whatever reason, you need to leave the dog with someone else's care. And you think maybe the dog thinks I abandoned it. A lot of pain, a lot of uh, stress responses being mobilized on both part of the owner and the dog during the separation. You know, if we do feel needed and wanted, then we must be missed, right? Well, I would think so. So, therefore, if our dogs are really happy to see us when we come back after a separation, well, then they do need me. They do want me. Therefore, we are missed. But, you know... I think the greater question here is, what really happens 
to your dog when it is separated from you. Is a joyful reunion a sign of missing you or is it the culmination of a stressful event? You know, it also, I have three different dogs and I get three different responses when I come in. We just did a promo video and uh, it illustrated how I have two dogs that greet me at the door when I come home and then I have one dog who does not care. He literally does not care that I just walked through the door. We actually captured it in, in the promo video. And I bet a lot of people think it was staged. It was actually, it was the second take. The only reason we did the second take is the other two dogs messed up. You know, the, the, <laughs> he, he gave out a perfect yawn in the video and that was not him acting in any way, shape or form. You know, so it, it, it depends on the dog, how they respond to you. Yeah. So I, I do think it's, it is better to focus on what happens to you as the dog owner and what happens to the dog? Do we have problems? Do we have psychological problems? Do we have physiological problems? Because being aware of it allows us to have some control. And I'll talk more about that here in a second. What occurs when you leave your dog? So let's kind of hop right into it because there's a research that was just done recently. And this was done at the University of Lauren in uh, Budapest, uh, Hungary. And the research basically calls to question what happens when dogs are left by their owners, and it really highlights separation-related disorder dogs. Sometimes we know this as separation anxiety. Is there a hyper-attachment to the owner? And if there is a hyper-attachment to the owner, does the condition worsen in the separation or the absence of the owner? They also wanted to know if an owner has a particular attachment style, does that affect the behavior of their dog when they come back and greet the dog, when they return uh, after uh, minutes after they leave? What occurs when the owner leaves the dog? So it's a pretty good study, but the biggest thing that they, they really came about on this study here is that they do believe. Now, no one knows and no one has applied uh, or attached any sort of attachment styles to dogs. Not at this point yet. I guarantee you that is coming as we start to move more and more toward this anthropomorphic line. But when I talk about attachment styles, I'm talking about either Mary Ainsworth or Dr. John Bowlby. And Dr. John Bowlby was the first psychologist to study attachment styles. And he basically classified what kind of styles do children have, infants have, uh, and young children have towards their parents? And he kind of came up with some four different types of styles. And one's called secure, and this is a very balanced uh, child or very balanced uh, adult. Uh, now we've applied these attachment styles to adults. And we're starting to lean in that direction to applying them to dogs, but they're just very secure people. Uh, very balanced in caregiving, very balanced in reception of that caregiving. But then you have the ambivalent attachment or insecure or preoccupied, again, dependent upon who's the, the scientist that is uh, promulgating all this information out there. But anytime you have the ambivalent attachment or the insecure or preoccupied, that person will be upset by separation, especially that child. They don't feel that the caregiver will meet their needs for whatever reason. They just don't feel like my needs will be met by the caregiver. And then there's avoidant attachment. And avoidant attachment is, I really don't care. Uh, I'm going to do my own thing. You're over there. You do your thing. I'm just not that attached to you. And then there's a disorganized attachment. It, and that's unclear. We, we can't, you can't pick up on what's happening. Uh, it's unclear. The caregiver acts apprehensive sometimes and reassuring other times. 
So again, you start now, now that you've heard that, you start thinking, hmm, what kind of attachment style do I have? Well, it, it doesn't matter because what they found out in this study was this. First of all, separation-related disorders. That is the major, the number one diagnosis that is given to dogs during 40% of veterinary visits. That is a condition that is attached to over 40% of the dogs in this country. It's, uh, but the problem with it is, is no one knows. There is no known. Although SRD is one of the most studied behavioral problems in dogs, its etiology is still obscure. Uh, they believe that potential causes range anywhere from any sort of negative early experiences, such as being separated from its mother too soon. Again, now we're talking about dogs, uh, traumatic experiences while the dog was separated from the caregiver. And I, I've told about episodes of that uh, b- before. And then also um, inheritable factors. Absolutely. I think that is the number one culprit. And uh, this study does hone in on that as the number one culprit. Uh, additionally, dogs uh, with SRD do not use the owner as a secure base, and they cannot be easily calmed down by the return of the owner after separation. That's directly from the study itself. And where they hone in on is this. We have a problem with separation anxiety or separation-related disorder, however you want to call it, in dogs. That's a known fact. It's one of the major things that I see when I'm dealing with fearful and aggressive dogs. It's one of the number one reasons why chemicals are used to balance neurochemical issues in these dogs. Um, I do believe it's definitely hereditary. But let's just go into all dogs, not just dogs with SRD. I'm just telling you about this study here because what it really came up with is this. Here's the big takeaway from the study. And it's not just this study. Other uh, scientists and other authors, and there's more research available to you. I'll make sure I put links to the, this research on our website, on the radio show tab, that you can refer to. But here's the big takeaway. We are finding out that it's not you that creates any sort of stress response in the animal when you leave. It's the separation itself. Meaning this study showed that dogs, regardless of who left them, whether it was the owner that left them, whether it was a substitute caregiver that left them, it doesn't matter. It's the separation. It is the social isolation. So now, why am I talking about all this? Because when we talk about dogs that are missing us, that they could be missing us, are they dwelling the whole time that they're in a kennel or the whole time that they're with a pet sitter or left with uh, unfamiliar family members, uh, distant family members? Are they dwelling on the thought that, oh my, have I been abandoned? Will my owners ever return to me? I wonder what they're doing. Are they on a distant beach somewhere? Did, why didn't they take me? Oh gosh, I can't wait till they return. Is that really what's happening when you leave your dog? No, I, nothing. There's nothing from a scientific level in any sort of way that would indicate that's what's happening. Only because, mostly because we understand how dogs think. Where is their memory? 
what gets parked in the cortex and uh, what is more in the hippocampus type area? What is more short-term memory versus long-term memory? Long-term memory is going to be more associated with survival type needs. Uh, the animal learns how to hunt a certain animal, learns what season is the best time to hunt that animal. When do caribou migrate? Dogs learn the same thing. When do I eat? What time do I eat? Where's my food found? Who is my caregiver? things of that sort. But when dogs are left, we need to start thinking about something here. Okay. You know, in the past, I've talked about physiological factors associated with your stress response. At the end of the day, it's all about stress. You've read it. You've heard it. Stress kills. Stress is bad for you. Oh my gosh. We're just now learning within the last couple of years, how bad it is for you. Elevated stress responses maintained prolonged or at very high levels will damage the organism. It leads to hypertension, or that which then leads to cardiovascular problems. It causes memory issues uh, as it prolongs itself. It causes diabetes. The list goes on and on and on. We were designed by nature to deal with mild to moderate transient stress only for a short period of time to escape the animal that's trying to eat us, to escape the human that's trying to attack us. We were not designed for prolonged stress. We do not have biological factors in our body that allow us to deal with prolonged stress. So where I'm going with this is animals were tested, both dogs, uh, primates, rats, while they were separated from their colonies, from their packs, and so on and so forth. And what they found out is this. First of all, how stressed you become under that condition is, is a uh, hereditary factor. That's a physiological issue. That's the neurochemical disorder and hereditary conditions that predisposes the dog to a higher modulation of the stress response. It also affects the speed in which the adrenals produce glucocorticoids, a steroid hormone that is released during the stress response. And that, that bad boy is responsible for so much of the damage that occurs to mammals when it's been maintained in the bloodstream at unusually high levels over a long period of time. And then, of course, that leads into dovetails right into the stressor, the duration of the stressor itself. Okay, so when the dog goes into boarding or a dog is left with a pet sitter that it does not know, know this. I don't care what the advertisements are. I don't care how much they say, oh, your dog's going to love it here. It's going to have the time of its life. It's all going to be wonderful. It's going to be a staycation for the dog. I'm going to tell you this much. If they've never been in that place, never left under those conditions, your dog will be stressed. And no doubt, if you care anything about your dog, you also will be stressed. So let's just think about that. And what do we do about that? You know, knowledge is power. And, you know, sticking your head in the sand and ignoring something is not power. Power. Power means control. So here's, we've learned that there are four factors. Now, you guys need to write this down. So if you're just listening to this while you're driving in the car, whatever you, wherever you go, make sure you download it and write this down because this applies to you, human, you dog owner, along with your dog. So, Kira and I board our dogs, and let's say we board them somewhere than at our facility. If that happens, our dogs will become 
stressed. Even if we board them here, they still become stressed for many reasons. But here's how they're going to try and cope with it. And here's why, first of all, they become stressed. So let me put that first. Here's why. Number one, anytime an animal is placed in a novel situation, a novel environment, never been there before, immediately studies have shown that by simply doing that, the animal will suppress its immune system. So their stress level will go up so high that the autoimmune system will shut down. It makes sense. Again, I'm an elk. I'm running from a wolf chasing me. I don't need to be worrying about catching diseases at the moment. I need all of my energy mobilized to my legs so I can get away. I need enhanced memory. What route did I take last time? What tactic worked last time? My oxygen rate goes up. My heart beats faster. I'm not wasting energy going to my long ears or to support my antlers. It's going to my legs. It makes sense. So when your dog goes, undergoes a novel situation, meaning I've never boarded here before, I've never had this pet sitter before, it is immediately going to be stressed. And not only does it cause it immune system to be suppressed, but it also causes an increased arousal and vigilance as the dog seeks the new rules of control and prediction. That's so important because there are four, four main psychological factors involved with stress. Why does stress even happen? Why do you become stressed when you're in a novel situation or a novel environment? Number one, lack of predictive information. Okay, I've never been here before. What time do they feed around this place? Who's that over there? Well, that person attacked me. Well, I don't know that dog that's barking. Why is that dog barking? There's no predictive information. You're searching, again, for the new rules of prediction. And then if you don't have prediction, then you start to lose control. I can't control what's happening to me here because I can't predict what's going to happen. At my home, I can predict what time I'm going to be fed. I can predict just about who it is that's going to feed me. I can predict where I'm going to be fed. But now all of these are gone. And whenever you can't predict what's going to happen to you, then you've lost control of the situation, which you then become stressed, period. It's no different. You're, you're lying in a dentist chair and they're drilling on you and you're thinking, are you almost finished? This is killing me. Imagine if the dentist says, oh, we have, uh, I don't know when we'll get finished. Now you have no control over the situation. You can't predict when this thing is going to end. So you stay, you stay super stressed. But the dentist says, ah, two more. All I got to do is just two more. It's going to take about 10 minutes. Well, you immediately start devising strategy to cope with that. You may have some sort of memory or some sort of distraction where you can just daydream about this. You can count backwards from 999 and work your way back, but you develop immediate coping mechanisms because now you have predictability, which then leads you control. Uh, they've done this kind of study with rats. Uh, many, many times they've given rats, they place rats in a cage and they give them a mild shock. And when I say shock, it's no more than you scruffing your feet with socks and a little static shock there. So they, they've done this with rats. And why they do it with the rats? Because the rat brain, rat brain is very similar to the human brain, which is similar to the dog brain, so on and so forth. Well, when the rat received 50 shocks in an hour, it became extremely 
stress, and they measured the stress both physiologically and behaviorally in this rat. Then after that, they gave it a warning. So a little tongue went off one second before the shock. Stress dropped in half. Why? Because the tone meant that the shock was coming. They didn't lower the shock. It was the exact same level, but it meant it was coming, which meant I could relax during all those times in which I didn't hear the tone. So the animal actually relaxed. Your dog is no different. If I have predictive information and I had, then I have control. I can control what happens to me. So they only took that test a little bit further. So I said, hmm. So the rat still acts a bit frustrated. Maybe we can give it an outlet because if you don't have pre prediction, you can't predict what's going to happen to you. you. Therefore, you can't control what's going to happen to you. You can become extremely frustrated, very frustrated. So they gave the rat an outlet. They gave it a block of wood. And as soon as it got shocked, it ran straight over and started gnawing on that wood. And the stress response dropped even half of the half level that had already dropped from the tone. Then they took a step further. They gave it another rat in the cage. And that's kind of funny in just a little way there because now when the shock went off, the rat ran over, sat next to the other rat and bit him. So he used the other rat as a piece of wood, but it gave the rat an outlet in which they measured the stress response and it had dropped to almost nothing. So your dog, when it comes into a boarding situation or is uh, left by you with a pet sitter, and again, you see me going back and forth with both of them, uh, they can't predict, which means I lost control, which means I become very frustrated. And lastly, there's the lack of social support. Now, they've also done studies in which they placed rats in cages, again, gave them shocks, but they put them in a cage with a bunch of rats that they don't know. I don't know these rats. And the stress response was not lowered the least bit by being in the company of rats I didn't know. But then they put the rat in a cage with other rats that it did know. And the stress response dropped more than in half. So these are important takeaways that we can take away whenever we are separated from our dogs. Now, because if we know, if we know what's going to happen, then that gives us some control. It gives us predictive information. Your dog is left in a boarding situation. I cannot predict. I don't know when I'm going to get fed. I'm not being in an environment in which I have social support. I don't know any of these dogs. I don't know any of these people. I have no social support. I, and if I'm just kept in a cage, I have no way to vent my frustration. I have no sort of outlet. And that's why many animals will turn to themselves. They'll lick their paws and develop lick granulomas or bite on their body or bite on the cage itself because they must have an outlet. It's why us, when we're stressed, Oh, maybe we exercise. Oh, and by the way, the studies have done studies on that. So yeah, exercise is great unless you don't enjoy it. If you're forcing yourself to exercise and you don't enjoy the exercise, you actually cause yourself to be more stressed so you're not achieving the benefit of the exercise. Uh, that's me, guys. I'm sorry. I, when I go down a rabbit hole, I go straight down the hole. And every dendrite that is branching off of that hole, 
there I go. That's just the way my brain works. So please put up with it and bear with it because I am getting to a point here. So me, I kind of like knowing this information about my dog. Okay. Yeah, he is going to go into a boarding situation. He doesn't know the other dogs there. Does he not know the other people there? Is he going to be stressed? Well, I'll tell you what. Now, all of a sudden, just me knowing that can cause me to be stressed, but can also cause me to take control. So, what do you do about it? Well, number one, know this. If you're doing a pet sitter situation, then you may want to have your dog become very familiar with that particular pet sitter. However, do know this. There will still be stress because the predictive information will not be available to the animal. Case in point, I'm the dog. I get fed every morning at 8 a.m. and every evening at 6 p.m. All right. Unless that pet sitter shows up exactly 8 a.m. and 6 p.m., your dog will become stressed. Absolutely. And that's going to happen. And I don't care who they are. I'm just putting it out there straight. I'm not getting on to people. I'm just putting it to you straight because you need to hear it straight. Hey, I got caught by the train. Uh, the last house I had to visit, the dog had decided that the toilet paper roll was the greatest toy it had ever discovered in its life. And that was all over the house. Uh, I had more dogs than what I should have had because people who I thought were going to cancel didn't cancel and so on and so forth. Meaning, yeah, you can leave your dog at home. It's in a, an environment in which it is accustomed to being, but everything else is gone gone. I lost my social support. I don't, I can't predict when the pet sitters are showing up at my house. I, I don't know what I'm going to get fed and when I'm going to get fed. It, again, stress. So, what do you do about that? Make sure, get on a tight schedule. Make sure they can pretty much within reason guarantee that schedule. Make sure that your dog knows who they are and then relax. Dogs don't die from this. Any, remember, we have the biology the biology to overcome mild to moderate transient stress. We have that biology. Stress is good. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing when it's like that. It only becomes bad when it's very severe or it's prolonged. It's pathological. So now I'm boarding, same thing. Hey, maybe go check out the place. Hang out there for a little while. Ask permission. Hey, can I come in and just hang out for about an hour? And if they say yes, just make sure you oblige by their rules. They may not have insurance that covers non-customers at that time, so on and so forth. They know what's hazardous and what's not. But yeah, you may want to hang out because now you can see, hey, this is where my dog is going to stay. This is what, what time do you guys feed? Uh, if you know this a week in advance, hey, if they say, well, we feed every morning at 8 a.m. and every evening at 6 p.m. And if your dog eats at a different schedule, shift it. About a week prior, shift it so that it meets the schedule in which the boarding facility has. That helps out a lot. Also, bring something for your dog to have an outlet, some sort of favorite toy or favorite bone or what have you. So I've got an outlet, I can chew on it. And if they allow play or they do pack boarding like we do, then elect that. Because in the beginning, oh no, I don't know you, you don't know me. But that's how you get to know one another by being around one another. So the dog has an appropriate pack member to be with, then that will immediately lower their stress response as soon as they feel they have social support, social support. So vitally important. So these are all just things that we can do.
Because uh, once you're gone, you're gone. It doesn't matter if you're a preoccupied attachment style, I mean, you're a helicopter parent or you're an avoidant type parent where you're thinking, you know, I don't really care if I have a dog, honestly. Uh, there are a lot of dog owners like that. They get into it and they go, what the heck did I do? What was I thinking? I don't really care about the dog. I mean, my gosh, it's cramping my lifestyle here. Well, here's something else that was surprising from this little research that was done over in, in, in Denmark is, I'm sorry, in Hungary, um, that the attachment style of the owners that were more dismissive avoided, meaning the dog owner who is not the helicopter dog owner, they believe has contributed to dogs developing separation-related disorders. Now, that kind of goes against the grain because mm-hmm. a lot of people think, well, I would think that the smothering helicopter parent will create a condition in which the dog always has to be around them, clings to them, all of this stuff. But no, what they're finding out is this. Even when you're around, you're not really super predictable because that type of owner doesn't feed at regular times. In other words, the the care and welfare of their dog is not their priority. So if they dole out a pet, it's usually, well, why'd you do that? What, what did I do to earn that? Same thing with punishment. What the heck was that all about? What did I do? Um, feeding. Oh, my God, I, I'm hungry. And when we get fed. So the animal starts to become super stressed even when the owner's around because there's no predictive information. And if you don't have predictive, you don't have control, if you don't have, you have both of those, you become frustrated. If you don't have an outlet, your stress response goes even higher. And if you don't have social support as a social animal, it's game over. So guys, this pretty, you know, I've actually learned a few things uh, with, with some of this latest research I've been digging into really uh, deep to uncover the results of a lot of studies and a lot of feedback and drawing conclusions back and forth between human and dog, placing limitations where the dog brain can only go so far and the human condition can go a little bit further. But I'm here to tell you, the brains are very similar. Cortex, limbic system, you know, hippocampus, amygdala, cerebellum, you name it. All of these components are very similar and they're going to be affected in, this, in much the same way. So me, I'm telling you what. If we ever have to leave our dog somewhere, if that is that I do not know where this place is, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, I don't, I've never left my dogs there. It's a novel situation, a novel environment. I'm going to know, okay, my dog's going to become stressed. What can I do to minimize that stress? What can I do? A couple things. One. I'm going to go visit that place. And I'm not going to take just the one minute or 10 minute tour. I'm going to go take the um, kind of working visit. Can you bring your dog? I mean, wouldn't it be a great idea to schedule like a day of daycare or something like that? Oh, absolutely. If they offer that, you bet. The more familiar, again, I've, I've said it a thousand times, dogs thrive on the familiar. Again, for all the four reasons, four main reasons that I've stated in the past. As far as the difference between boarding and staying at home, would it, I mean, is there an argument to be made that for a dog left in its own territory at home might be more stressful considering it's kind of holding down the fort by itself and then the strangers walking in, you know, threatening them in their own territory versus just going to some place that 
they have no claim over and, and everything is new, would it be easier for them to pick up a new routine versus uh, an environment in which a, an established routine was there now all of a sudden is, is being completely messed up? You know, I think there's so many factors. Uh, so you can say yes and no back and forth, just depend upon the dog's uh, genetic baseline. Am I predisposed? Am I one of these animals that becomes overly stressed? You know, we see human beings all the time subjected to the same stressor. Some be scared. I can handle that like an all day sucker. And others, they fold up like a lawn chair. We see this. This is part of the hereditary factor that's involved. But I will say one thing the environment in which the dog is at typically at a commercial boarding facility, at least they can control the environment in which the dog is in, if that makes any sense to you, meaning you're in this cage. We do turn off the lights at this time. We turn them on at that time. Uh, if everything is pretty consistent, then that animal is going to pick up on it much faster. Because remember, I have hypervigilance. I'm watching everything. I'm listening to everything because I'm trying to find out the new rules of control and predictive information. They immediately try to seek that out. So, you know, and a lot of people also have to understand too, okay, I leave my dog at home. Okay, well, here's what happens. You're not there and you're not there during the night. So, so many dogs have become very used to humans leaving during the day because they go to work or they go run errands or whatever have you. But they always return. And usually by X, whatever time that is, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, we're all in bed, you know, period. Humans are here. The ones I know, my social support is here. But guess what? Now there's no one staying with your dog unless you have someone staying with your dog. And now you do have a human. And they'll just take them a little bit of time to become used to that human. And once they do, then they now have that social support. Um, so, you know, I'd be more in favor of the house sitter as long as the house sitter in a, versus the just come and go, come and go type caregiving. As long as uh, there's some sort of no fear factor. Again, there are many dogs who fear men and all of a sudden you hire a man to watch your dog and that could be very upsetting and cause even more stress. Um, so anything that can become more familiar is better. Uh, but, you know, that is a good point there. You know, a lot of people don't take that into account. I never thought about that. What happens come bedtime and no one's home? This is an animal that's very stressed. I've seen animals get stressed because they go on the 5 p.m. walk every day. But now all of a sudden, we're not taking the 5 p.m. walk. And they become very stressed. Uh, again, stress is fine, guys. There's nothing wrong with it. Dogs are going to be stressed. I always kind of make a joke and tell everyone when your dog comes into like our facility, they will be clicking their heels trying to get back to Kansas for about the first two days. That's called acclimation. That is learning the new rules of control and predictability. Once they've got that, then if you provide them with any sort of outlet uh, for any frustration that sets in due to other factors, that's going to be awesome. They're going to take advantage of that. And once they get to know everyone, both the human component and the dog component, well, then now I have social support. And all this is about minimizing the stress, not making it go away because it's not going to. It's about minimizing it, not creating a traumatic event because traumatic events get parked in deep, dark places at a molecular level that the dog will never forget. And then soon you can start running out of options. I can't go anywhere because if I do, if I do, then my dog will be hyper stressed. Okay. 
And uh, so if I think if we've got that, then that we kind of covered that area as well. Uh, one last little thing I want to put about, and that's just real quickly about senior dogs. You know, it's been proven that aging induces many morphological and metabolic changes in the brain, which will eventually lead to a cognitive impairment and dementia called cognitive dysfunction syndrome in senior dogs. So if you're going to be boarding a senior dog or you're going to have a pet sitter watch a senior dog, kind of take that into account as well. Because when that happens, then just by itself, it creates its own, its own problem. Uh, I've owned dogs like that. Kieran and I talked about, I think, on the last show, which we owned a dog that put himself in timeout. He would just put mm -hmm. himself in his own timeout. He would go lay down and, and lie down and look at a corner and not move away from it. This is now it's just a matter of providing good care, good care. Uh, that animal will probably be less stressed because it'll go in and out to you know its happy place and not so happy place in and out. But studies have shown that they're actually a little bit less stressed. So no concern with that at all. Okay. We have a couple of questions that were sparked from this discussion. So can I ask? Shoot them this? to me. Okay. Do you think 40% diagnosed with separation anxiety is accurate or do you think that's an overdiagnosis? I think it personally, I think it's over, but not by much, not by much. 20% of all dogs are deemed to be, and this is accurately suffering from some sort of maladaptive condition. I think that that is absolutely correct. Now, again, there are severities of that. Um, every dog, remember, will have separation anxiety to a degree. When you're a hypersocial creature and you don't have social support, like I've been saying, you will be stressed. But I think that is an, uh, an exaggeration of that number because it's being taken, uh, that number was arrived uh, from the polling of veterinarians. And again, nothing against you veterinarians out there, but I just call into question the ability to, you, you're, what a veterinarian is going to rely upon is the feedback from the owner, the owner's testimony. And this little research uh, that I talked about, this little study that was done, uh, one thing that they definitely said at the end of it was that uh, biases in the owner's interpretation of their dog separation behavior also suggests that veterinarians and behavior specialists should be aware that owner's characteristics influence how they interpret and report behavior problems. Amen. Meaning, if you're an anxious attachment style person preoccupied, you are going to report inaccurately your dog's behavioral symptoms under any condition. You know, we, we've had clients who will or just people I know in general will look at the, a picture of their dog and, and say, oh my gosh, that dog, he looks so sad. And in the picture at the moment, the dog was happy as could be. Or we even had one where they claimed that the dog looked thirsty. And so, you know, you, you can't, you can't judge that you can't take anything that people say as accurate assessment of, of what's going on. Yeah. Cause there's so many things that can, can, you know, again, that can, cloud that, uh, the findings that you have, whatever conclusion that you arrive at. So I don't think it's accurate cure. I think that the, again, I own the veterinary hospital, so I don't kind of know what goes on in there. And you rely so much upon the interpretation of the dog's owner, yes. which is then going to be biased based upon their attachment style. You got to depend everything on that. Uh, so, no, I think it's slower, but I would park it somewhere around 30%. I really would. Okay. 
So the second one that came up was, does a dog that is diagnosed with separation anxiety have a greater chance of developing a codependency, which we call a secure base attachment, with the owner? Um, no. Well, used to. When I say used to, just less than even two years ago, that was the thought. That's what we believed. But now new studies, new advancements, brain imaging, all this technology that we have, and all this funding that is going into this research. And here's why the funding, by the way, is going into this research. They, it is predicted that by the year 2020, okay, so what are we right now, 2019, that depression will be the number two disability in the world. Number two, the, the second most severe condition in human beings will be depression. Wow. It causes over 800,000 suicides per year. And you can have depression and never once try to commit suicide. You have lower dopamine levels, so on and so forth. And you can't even get out of the bed, so let alone now kill yourself. So it's, yeah. It's a problem. That's why it's being studied. So we know so much more than what we've known before. But we used to believe that, A, dogs that had a secure base attachment to their owners, that they would suffer even a greater effect when their owners leave. But again, now all of a sudden we've moved forward and said, okay, well, tell you what, let's let this dog live with someone else for about a week and let them start leaving the dog. Exact same stress response. That's remarkable. So in other words, it's not the owner. Yes, the dog can start to develop a secure-based attachment because remember, dogs mirror their owner's stress response. So you come home, you're all nervous, you're all afraid, you're all this and that. Then your dog's going, oh my God, oh my God, and here we go. My heart starts beating faster from my sympathetic nervous system. Um, I, I, my eyeballs become dilated, my memories enhanced, my sensory capabilities enhanced, so on and so forth. Down the line we go because they mirror their owner's stress response. So that will create clinginess right then and there because, oh my God, if there's something horrible going on, strength in numbers. You may be a weak owner, but at least it's better that two of us face it. Misery does love company, so on and so forth. We can sit there all day long and come up with these little examples. But yeah, there is strength in numbers. And remember, I do know you and remember the rat that's in the cage. So just by the fact that I do know you, I am familiar with you, it's not a novel situation any longer, my stress response will drop and my coping mechanism, one of them, one of them, there'll be many, will be clinging to you. But once you leave, it's the stress itself. It's the separation itself. And now if I'm frustrated, then yeah, I could take it out on myself. I could take it out on your leather sofa, on the uh, surrounding perimeter of a door, the door frame that ripped the blinds down. This is frustration. And frustration creates so many things. One of the things that you and I were kind of talking about earlier, Joshua, before the show, was what's known as stress-induced displacement of aggression. And you're walking two dogs. They're both your dogs. They see another dog coming. One dog goes, rah, 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 rah. And you say, no. And it turns and bites the other dog next to it. Again, that's the rat in the cage. Yeah. It just goes over and bites the other animal or turns and bites you. That's an outlet for frustration. So again, I took a long route in answering that question, but I just wanted to make sure it was very thorough and, and maybe it highlighted a few other areas that could become questions. That's good. That's good. 
All right. You anything to add there, Joshua? Well, I was, one thing I guess is is that I think that the the reason that we perceive the you know kind of the helicopter uh, owner as the one that might have the more fearful dog or the one that has the separation anxiety worse um, is because we're as, actually misinterpreting the fact that the reason the dog is fearful in the beginning is because it probably had a predisposition to be fearful, and then because it was fearful, the helicopter type uh, attachment style actually just reinforced that behavior over and over and over again because they thought coddling and things like that. So that's probably more so the reason why we make that association more. So it's just, it, it was made worse by the situation, not caused. Does that make sense? It, no, it not only does it make sense, but it's a good point that I will touch on and I'll try to do it next episode because it's, it's really deep and I want to save time to answer some questions here, but there is a condition known as learned helplessness. And you just touched all over that learned helplessness. Uh, so I'm going to make myself a little note here. I'll have, have Kira write it down here. I want to talk about learned helplessness on the next episode that we have, because that would need about 15 minutes for me to be able to explain it, hopefully in a way that everyone's not walking away going, what the heck was Brian talking about? <laughs> what did he say? That dude went down a rabbit hole that has no bottom, obviously. <laughs> So I want to give it some thought and I want to put it all together in a way that I hopefully will be beneficial to everyone. Okay. I, let's hop on to those questions. And we got a couple of them. I want to attend to those real quickly here and see okay. what we can do about it. Got it. I have a very confident one-year-old German Shepherd lab mix. She has been bratty since she was a very young puppy. Now that she's bigger, her bratty side is kind of scary. She growls and lunges at me when I ask her to do something like sit down or go outside. Have I ruined her? Can I train this out of her? Go, go ahead, Josh. <laughs> Josh was just giggling over there. He's, he's over there kind of got this well, little giggle. I'm just like, the, jump on it, man. The reason I'm giggling is because it's, you know, one-year-old German Shepherd. It's, you know, mouthy and it's bitey and, and things like that. It reminds me of a dog um, that we had in training named Lily here. It was a German Shepherd and she was just the exact same way. Um, you know, if you tried to put a collar on her, she would throw an ever living fit and bite at you and, and all these things. But, um, I guess is the, is the question, what was the exact question on that part? It was more so. She, she wants to know if she's ruined her. What can she do to train that out of her? No, you have not ruined her because Lily is a very well behaved German shepherd now today <laughs> with just some basic rules and boundaries, just some, you know, start by telling your dog, no. And now let's, let's say what, what is no. Okay. No to us is a word that is spelled N O and it means don't do whatever you're doing or negative or opposite of yes. Right. To the dog, make sure that there's some sort of consequence that is followed with the word no, or, or, you know, as a precursor to the word, no, don't, don't um, just tell the dog no. in in your form, make sure that you're giving the dog some sort of cost of, of making sure that they understand that that behavior is not accepted. You know, and, and I'm just going to take that a little bit deeper down the rabbit hole. So here we go again. This could be a control issue that's, that's happening between human and dog. Uh, why do dogs snarl? Why do they show us their bratty side? Why do they lunge at us? They're trying to control the situation. And part of that control is influencing your behavior. Now let's take it back in time. How did we arrive at this point? Through experimentation on the part of the animal. I received something that to me was probably threatening. Why was it threatening? Could have been my uh, hereditary factors. 
It could be the fact I suffered a traumatic experience when I was young, uh, so on and so forth. But either way, something caused the animal to act. And when it acted, it got a result. And the fact that the dog is still doing this and actually starting to escalate is nothing more than signaling between dog and human. It's no different than the first time a dog sees someone approaching your yard. First time ever. Just goes, woof, woof. hey guys, there's someone here. There's something here. Fast forward six months from now. Now they're tearing the door down. Because why? I keep trying to control the situation. You keep showing back up again. And I keep going wolf, growl, bark, lunge, and you still keep showing up. So again, the same sort of things happening here in which the person keeps showing up. They keep trying to make the animal do commands and the animal saying, I don't want to do them. Maybe I'm afraid of doing them. And, and that's the greatest thing there. I would have to look at this and say, are we dealing with a maladaptive animal whose perception of the events that are occurring is that of a threat to me when it really should not be? Another dog may not perceive it as that and go, oh, yeah, I'll do it. I'll lay down. I got it. I, I can figure it out. Uh, because through, that's one of the things I really love about good, notice how you use the word good, or proper obedience training. It gives the animal control. Control. It gives it predictive information. It gives it social support. I'm walking down the sidewalk. I see someone coming with their dog. My dog happens to perceive that approaching person and dog as a threat. I say, hey, I got it, buddy. I got it. Lean on me. I'm a caregiver that can absolutely take care of your welfare during the situation. And the animal stress response lowers. And anytime that lowers, then the outward behavioral signs and the physiological signs will drop. So in this situation here, it's all about control. And like you said, Joshua, obedience is a really good thing because it gives the animal control. I say sit. If, you're, if you sit, then here's something that occurs. And the outcome is up to you, dog. You can control the outcome once because now you're giving it predictive information as well uh, because I know what happens if I fail to sit. Again, once they learn, go through all the mechanisms of simply learning the word sit. First time you say sit to a dog, you might as well say scuba dog. Uh, they got to go through all that first. But once they do, now they can control the outcome. But somehow, some way, this animal decided that aggression works for me. And I'm going to keep using that aggression. In fact, the older I become, the more capable I become at dispensing it, the more determined I become. So I would, no matter what, I would get this under control right now with a one-year-old dog before this turns into a two or three-year-old dog. Because now you could actually be talking about a trip to the hospital or even a fatality. Either way, if it's, if it's something fearful, we got to find that thing out because we can use chemicals to help stabilize that neurochemical disorder. We can exercise some counter conditioning if we already have molecular memory that's leaning in the bad in the direction which I perceive this whole situation as a threat. And we can start to exact control. Hey, I'm going to control you and you get to control your outcome. That's a wonderful day for everyone. So again, not to go too deep on that, but I just want to add those two cents in yeah, there. That was good. Okay. <clears throat> Second question. I have four dogs, all males. In previous episodes, I have heard you use the term principle of resemblance. What does that term mean? And does it have any effect on my dog's behavior 
toward each other. Amen, it does. It has a whole lot to do with it. Uh, The principle of resemblance is basically nature's use of a visual signaling mechanism using a visual signal. Uh, It was put in place to blunt aggression. So the way it works is I'm a wolf or I'm a dog and I have offspring and my offspring start to grow. You know, I talked about the one-year-old German Shepherd, get this thing under control before it becomes two. Amen. One day, Papa Wolf or Papa Dog or Mama Wolf or Mama Wolf uh, Dog looks across the way and goes, hey, have you seen Mrs. Lately or Junior? That boy's about head level with me and he's got a bit of an attitude, meaning these dogs have arrived at full maturity. The fact that they can look eye level, they're the same gender means you resemble me. And that means you just shifted from being my offspring or being an animal I should not be concerned with or I was not concerned with, but I now am. You just went from that offspring or again, in the household in which it was never their offspring, just another dog that you brought into the household, you just became an opponent. And it could have been that the second you walked in the door, the very second you walked in the door. But over a period of time, typically as dogs age, they grow larger, they grow more determined, they are getting ready. Mother Nature says, you need to leave. And she uses dispersing to blunt aggression. So dad looks across the way and goes, huh, Junior's got some size on him. He looks like me. He's about as tall as I am. He's got an attitude. I think it's time for him to go. Does this sound familiar? Are you a parent? Got college age kids? You're looking across the way going, you know, Kara, I think it's time for them to go. And so we use dispersing. We kick them to the curb. We say, there's a university that you can go live at for the next four years. There's a, an apartment you can live in and you can get a job. Sound familiar? You bet it does. Again, because we're humans and we are smart enough and live long enough and well enough that we don't have to act like wolves who are governed by the law of limited resources and starve half their lifetime. It's more pronounced for them. So you bet it will. Uh, I always tell people all the time, if you're going to own more than one dog, do your very best to at least own opposite genders. Opposite genders. In the wild, and, and, and it doesn't matter if it's among lions, if it doesn't matter if it's among East African hunting dogs, wolves, you name it. In the wild, competition is always most fierce within its own gender. Always has been, always will B, I need to worry about Junior and Kira. You need to worry about Mrs. You bet it does. Yeah. And uh, that's the point I was going to make is that gender has a whole bunch to do with it. Like I always say, I have three different dogs at home, two female, one male. Uh, the male and, and is never getting any, any tiffs with the females. It's always the two females, whether it's over a place on the, on the dog bed or food that they've discovered or a toy. It's always the females that are getting in those tiffs. Yeah. You know, and in this situation here, again, it's all about control, guys. Uh, that's, that's what this entire episode was about. Stressors will be incurred. You have two males against two males. If you don't want to rehome one, you don't want to disperse one of them as nature would do, then you've got to step in and control the situation. You, you definitely do. Uh, I, I always laugh when people say, Brian, I, I need your help in making these two male dogs of mine get along. And I always say, I'm really glad you used the term make them because that's the only way you're going to get this thing done. By being a good zookeeper 
or hey, I'll tell you what, you fight, go lay over here in this corner and you go over here and lay in this corner and you're controlling the situation there. Okay, guys, uh, next week we are going to talk about is there such thing as pure play? You've heard me hit on it before. There was a question today about play. Uh, the listener that wrote that question, I will answer that next week because our whole topic is, is there such a thing as pure play among dogs or is there an alternative motive for their play? If you own a daycare or you take your dog to daycare or dog park, you're going to want to tune in for this episode. And for those of you who reside around here locally, hey, this weekend, I'm giving a free seminar on learn how to effectively communicate to your dog. So make sure you come in here and it's at 10 a.m. from 10 a.m. to 1130 a.m. On Saturday. On Come in here and, and pick up on a few little tips here on how you can effectively communicate with your dog. All right, Joshua, where can they find us? Do they want to listen to us or YouTube, whatever? Uh, definitely check out our Facebook and go to YouTube and subscribe and you'll get all types of, uh, you know, funny skits and, and different informative videos. So very good. All right, guys, we're going to check out of here. You have a great week. And once again, next week we talk about play. And if you have any questions from today's episode, send them in to Brian with the Y at TamingTheWild.com. And I promise I'll get with you and I'll answer those questions for you. See you guys next week. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join host Brian Bailey again for another edition of Taming the Wild and Your Dog next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Your dog's welfare and your life may depend on it. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. It's staff and management. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Find out what's happening on the